All right. Uh, some of the songs we sang this morning, those tunes are familiar to me even from my childhood, though I didn't grow up in a religious home. Uh, in the schools around this time, those Thanksgiving hymns uh, tended to be uh, played by the choirs and the bands and the orchestras and any group. If you were learning music, you learned those. Uh, I was playing the cornet in elementary school, and so I was trying to remember the fingering of some of those uh, melodies. I can't remember that. It's been too many, too many years. All right. As a Judeo-Christian congregation, we enjoy the celebration and understanding of the holy days of both Judaism and Christianity. The foundation for that are the holy days and seasons established in the Torah in Leviticus 23, as the appointed times of the Lord. And then beyond these, uh, the tradition of Judaism has added significant days of observance related to God's faithfulness and watch care over Israel, including Hanukkah, which is uh, coming up. The Christian tradition followed this by adding additional seasons and holy days related to the life and ministry of Jesus and themes related to the faith and teaching of the apostles. Both traditions... Judaism and Christianity, have also included sub-traditions that are regional, ethnic, national, or congregational in focus. I'm not sure you could cover all of the holidays and holy days found in in those two faiths, um, even in a single book. Maybe you could by just listing them, but you couldn't explain them. Drawing from a legend... um, We, this week, celebrate the American Judeo-Christian holiday of Thanksgiving. Now, this day is at once an ethnic national level of observance. It's an American holiday in some sense. And in that sense, it's based on the American pilgrimage of the faith and the establishment of this faith in the Americas. But particular, uh, this country uh, acknowledges and celebrates, to some extent, its Judeo-Christian influence in its beginnings. And drawing from the legends associated with that, and all, all holy days begin to develop legends associated with them, and the American history, this day commemorates a feast honoring God's provision, celebrated by pilgrims and Native Americans, that acknowledge their dependence on God and the cooperation of each other. And over time, it became a national holiday, celebrated both religiously and culturally. The national celebration acknowledges God's blessing over the country and the importance of family and sharing with those in need. A great deal of uh, focus on that uh, will be found throughout this culture. The religious celebration is a reminder of the dependence on God and the attitude of thanksgiving that we should have for His watch care and blessings all the time. This theme is directly related to Sukkot and the harvest festivals of the Bible and of Judaism, uh, where Israel remembers God's faithfulness and provision in the wilderness. And in that sense, they're both harvest uh, celebrations. And harvest has both a food idea and a in-gathering of Israel and an in-gathering of uh, God's people at the last time. And so those themes uh, are shared in that context. 
It's also become, for many, connected with Christmas and Hanukkah, uh, in some sense kicking it off, although the stores started in August. Um, And this is both, again, cultural and religious. Uh, So for many, this week begins the whole season of the cultural holidays and the religious holy days. Um, Next week I'll talk a little bit about the connections and the hyperlinks between biblical themes and all of the holy days in this season. Um, But today we're going to focus particularly on Thanksgiving and the concept of Thanksgiving. That's what we call it. And the focus is on giving thanks to God and sharing His goodness and the testimony of His faithfulness uh, with others. And so what I've done for the last several years is, on this Thanksgiving service, I've taken one of the Psalms to uh, talk about Thanksgiving, and today I decided to use Psalm 33. So if you're not there, if you'll turn to Psalm 33... It's not a large psalm, 22 verses. I'm going to uh, be relatively brief with it, although there's some things I want to point out in the psalm. One of the problems I see with with, uh, sermons on psalms is that uh, there is the difference in just the flow of the psalm, which is beautiful, just like the lyric of any song. And then there's the study of it, and the danger of uh, the study of a psalm is to think it's prose when it's poetry. And so it's important to understand that the psalms are poetic, um, and they're written originally in Hebrew poetry, and then translated into English, trying to retain the Hebrew poetry and do the English. uh, And in some cases, then, words get... uh, used that fit the notion of poetry and the notion of rhyming and those kinds of things. Um, And that makes it sometimes difficult to interpret them. On the other hand, some of the psalms are very easy to follow, and I think this is one that is, is relatively easy. So we begin with the first three verses of Psalm 33. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with the shout of joy. Now, the word joy begins and ends this section. And the idea is joyful singing. uh, That is joy in the Lord. And is giving thanks to the Lord with musical instruments. I think that that's an important part of Um, our energy and strength. If you've been in services where there are choirs and there are uh, instruments and there's a lot of congregational singing, you almost go out of that time invigorated. There's a charging of your batteries that that happens in in that context. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, movies like Sister Act are are so popular is that there it connects into that kind of joy and and at this season it 's amazing how many people will listen to the songs of the season even if they 're not believers 
and, and find joy in that context. Now the joy that the psalmist talks about is joy in the Lord, not in the season. Uh, and joy in the Lord is focusing on what the Lord has done, giving thanks to the Lord. Now, he says one thing here that I, I'm kind of fascinated by. The verse 3, it says, Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with the shout of joy. Sing to him a new song. I don't think that means, okay, find a song you haven't sung before and sing it. What I think it means is that the Lord in his actions, the Lord in his watch care, the Lord in his taking care of us, um, is doing things all the time. He is active in his creation. He's active in our lives. And that means it's not good enough just to sing about what he's done in the past, but what he's done presently. It's one of the reasons why we have our testimony time each week in the service. Some churches do that occasionally. We do it all the time because I want us to give testimony to the fact that God is active in, in, our, um, in our midst. And that also is to be done with a shout of joy. Um, I know that in uh, recent times, as we have been going through some serious struggles, uh, early in that process, I asked God to just give us little signs of His presence and His watch care. And they almost seemed to happen on a weekly basis. And then we went through a period, and are in a period now, where I don't see that doesn't mean it's not there. I saw it to get encouraged, and I now have to trust in that context that the Lord is active. And so there will be times when the Lord is clearly seen, and times when He's not. When He's seen, we should rejoice and give joy. And maybe we need to add some verses to some of the hymns and some of the songs that we sing. Uh, you know we do that at uh, 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 Yom Torah when we put the, the, the rocks as the testimony, each of those are things the Lord has done in the past. And then we give another one where we give testimony to what God has done among us as a congregation and is doing in our life. And so I think that idea of the new song is to stay current in praising the Lord and not just talk about what the Lord did back 20 years ago. Then we get to verses 4 through 9. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. For all the earth fear the, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Uh, fascinating verses. Uh, the theme here is the goodness and faithfulness of God in His creation. And it focuses on two things. His Word and His Spirit. Now that ought to draw you immediately back to Genesis 1, where it says... That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And God said, let there be light. The Word of God and the Spirit of God work in concert. 
Too often we separate the Word and separate the Spirit as if they're separate things. And they really function together. God speaks and His Spirit acts. And those things begin to uh, cause all that God has done. And so the creation is the beginning of His works. The new creation will be the culmination of all His works. And in the middle of that, He is working for Jesus said, My Father works, therefore I work as well. And so God is active by His Word and by His Spirit. Now, the Spirit of God is difficult to know and understand. And I know we live in a time where everybody uses the force and thinks it's the Spirit. And often that's just emotion or circumstances. But the reality is that we know what God does by His Word. The more we know His Word, the more we know Him. And we see what His Spirit does. And the, more, the less we know the Word, the less we see that. Because God's Word and His Spirit work together. Say example that I give in many classes uh, based on 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, that the Word of God uh, is inspired. Uh, that word inspired is God-breathed. And I think of it, the, the connection between the Word of God, the speech of God, and the breath of God uh, in this way. I'm talking to you now, and to do that, I have to breathe out in order for my words to be heard. And if I stop breathing and just mouth the words, you don't hear a thing and you don't understand a thing. Because it is the Word of God by means of His Spirit breathing into it. And the Scriptures are that. And they give us illumination so that we can see the other things that His Spirit is doing according to His Word. So, I think that the psalmist understands the joy of the Lord, that God is active. He is active by His Word, keeping His Word. His Word will not return to Him void. And His Spirit is active in all the earth. As the psalmist says, where can I go away from your Spirit? If I go to the highest heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. The Spirit of God and the Word of God permeates His entire creation. Then he picks it up at verse 10. Uh, with a passage that for me is comforting, um, but it's an odd way to, to say that. The, no, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for his inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out. All the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. Now fascinating. This is not just about. The fact that God breathed everything into place. But that the Lord is. Observing and judging. I used to think, well, if God's watching, why doesn't He do something about this? And the reality is, He is doing something. He's doing it in His time. We like to sing that song, but we don't particularly like it in reality. I don't want it in His time. I want it in my time. right? But the reality is, He is watching. And nothing is going past His view. And He knows 
the counsels and the plans of men and he knows that they're futile and he knows that there's nothing in this world that will stay except what he is doing and that he will ultimately correct all of the evils and all of the bad things that are done in this world. And so he will ultimately frustrate the plans of them. So the nation, the people whose God is the Lord and those whom he has chosen and called to himself are blessed because they have that eternal perspective. And boy, do we need eternal perspective when we're going through difficult times. Uh, we, don't, we don't tend to, you know, in the light, you don't see the light. Uh, these, these candles, you can see them, they're bright, but boy, if we turned out all the lights, their light would be seen well beyond just the, the wicks here. They'd be seen, you'd see shadows, even little shadows on the wall of, of the light towards things. Uh, but we can't see that in the light. But in, when it becomes dark, that light uh, shines even brighter. So, we know that God is wise above the wisdom of men. We just finished the the series on 1 Corinthians talking about the foolishness of God is wiser than men. God's plan and God's purpose will last from generation to generation as He nullifies the plans and purposes of men. But the people who follow God are blessed because He sees us, He knows us, He works in our hearts, He knows our thoughts and intents, and He knows that we are dust. He has compassion on us as we are humble. As the scripture says, the Lord resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Then in verses 15 to 17, and I, I read the 15, so let me just pick up with 16. The king is not saved by a mighty army. The warrior is not delivered by great strength. The horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. I forget this lesson all the time. I tend to be a problem solver. That's what you do when you counsel and that's what you do with everything. Here's the problem, let's fix it. And my tendency is to look only at the fix that is presented in this context and not in the context of God. We should never forget that our solution is not found in the wisdom of men. It's not found in the power of men. It's not found in the horse. Now the psalmist here uses the horse and the strength and the army because that's what the people of his time depended on. We depend on law and government, courts. We depend on medical people. We depend on police. We depend on all of these things, thinking that if those things operate right, everything will go well. Well, those things never operate right, and things don't go well. Ultimately, we can't depend on those things. We're in that world. We have to function in that world. But that's not ultimately where our peace and where our comfort and where our solution lies. Our solution lies in verse 18. It's interesting the way it starts. 
Behold. Look. Consider. Wake up. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. On those who hope for His loving kindness. That word loving kindness means mercy. It means loving kindness. It means faithfulness. It means justice. So let me amplify this as we do in the Amplified Bible uh, to give you that. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His mercy, His loving kindness, His faithful justice, and His goodness. Now, this fearing of the Lord is not terror of His judgment, but assurance of His mercy. And that comes to those who humble themselves before God, even to the point of suffering, knowing that that suffering does not go unnoticed. I want you to turn with me to James chapter 4. James 4, verses 6 through 10. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded ones. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. There is, I believe, a key to God giving more grace. And that is humility in the context of opposition that we find ourselves in. Uh, not easy to do, to suffer in that way. Uh, and none of us do it well. But there is a grace of God where He comes to our aid and He comes to our reinforcement in that context. Now back in this psalm, I want you to look at God's object in verse 19. I'm going to read 18 and 19 together because I want you to see the focus. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. It's interesting that two things are said. We tend to focus on the first. Salvation. Passing from death unto life. And the idea of resurrection and that hope. And that certainly is the eternal thing. 
But God was with Israel all through the wilderness. Their shoes did not fail. Their food supply did not fail. Even though they were not necessarily practicing the presence of God. They were, they were more griping and kvetching about, about everything. So here the psalmist says, death and famine. I think this is both eternity and hope in this life. Now, if we only have hope in this life, Paul says, we're of all men most miserable. So clearly the most important is the eternal hope, and that sustains us in all difficulty. But he doesn't say he will abandon us in this life. And even though this life has terrible uncertainty, we can trust him because none of those things separate us from the love of God, as Paul tells us in Romans. So I want to look at Romans 8 afresh. It is a passage we're all very familiar with. It's a passage that uh, I have always found to reinforce my hope and to give me focus in difficult times. In verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I struggle with that verse. When I see the difficulties of this life that others have, that we've had, God has set a bar of resurrection and hope that I can't imagine because... If, they, if I just wake up one day and the world is fine, I don't think that makes this suffering not worthy to be compared. So, this is a high bar that God has set. I think that's why he says, as we saw in Corinthians, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, neither has it entered into the imagination of men the things which God has prepared. I think the kingdom is going to be fantastic. But I don't think it is that compared to the new creation that will, that will follow. So he says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. We all say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be free from the slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we who have the Spirit, we groan within ourselves. You don't just get the Spirit, now you're getting for God. There is, in fact, I think sometimes the suffering of the, the believer is a, a, a greater suffering because we have a taste of the hope and it just doesn't seem right. We're waiting for the adoptions of sons, the redemption of body. In hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not see... With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Now, he's not saying we wait happily for it. What he means is the more we're suffering, the more desperate we are 
for that hope to come and be here. And then he says that God is working with us in intercession and that God will take care of us. And then he ends in verse uh, 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. And I wish it just went on to, in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquerors. But there's a verse here that usually doesn't get quoted. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. I am more and more convinced that the pathway of this faith is a pathway of difficulty and challenge and suffering. And I don't like it. And the suffering makes me want to leave the paths of righteousness. Because they don't seem to be doing any good. But then I remember the psalmist. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, not to fix the situation. I'm not earning God fixing our situation by walking righteous. He leads me that way for his reputation's sake. And none of that separates me from ultimately his love and his promises to us. In that then, he says, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul was convinced, and I'm trying to be convinced, that neither death nor life nor angel nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, anything of this creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So back to Psalm 33. The hope for which we wait, the psalmist says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in Him. The joy is in Him, not these circumstances. Because we trust in His holy name. What does that trust look like? Well, Soon as we get a couple weeks down the road, I will go to Second Corinthians for the second part of that. So let's take a look quickly now. Second Corinthians four. Paul talks about the difficulties that the apostles are going through. And then he says. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. 
for, for momentary, what he calls light affliction, that's by comparison, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. There it is. Somehow God says, I'll take all this crap and do good in it. I don't get that. I trust it. I don't get it. Because all I see at times is the darkness and the difficulty. But God says, I'm going to work good in it. A far greater eternal weight of glory. And it won't even be worth comparing. Joy is in the inner man, not the outer man. So though our outer man is perishing in its connection with all the corruption and the darkness of this world and its decay, the inner man is renewed day by day. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Day by day. Day by day. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Easy, easy to say. Each day has enough difficulty for itself. As your days are, so shall your strength be. So I was thinking about that this week. Day by day. How do I get through this day? How do I face the next day? And then I remembered, in the book of total problem, not Job, Lamentations. That is a book of grief. And in the midst of that book, the steadfast love of the Lord never changes. His mercies are renewed every morning, day by day. So the psalmist ends with a prayer. Let your mercy, your loving kindness, your faithfulness, your blessed hope, O Lord, be upon us. Accordingly, as we have hoped in you. It is our hoping in Him, not circumstances, Him that assures us of that hope, that strengthens us, that reminds us that underneath are the everlasting arms. And therefore, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of death, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of misunderstanding, all of that, we can have joy in the Lord, and the joy of the Lord can be our strength. And if we catch it enough, there will be a shout of joy in our heart. Let's pray.